and welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. I still have my hands in the air. I outlasted my co-host for today. It's Ryan Bailey. Hello, Ryan. Hello, Tay-Tay. I've been doing some uh, at-home exercises, so mm-hmm. I'm a little bit, uh, <laughs> a little bit stiff when I'm raising my arms in, in salute at the start of the show. I apologize for that, but you are very committed to the course. It's not just that the arms are up in the air. I wish the viewers, the listeners could see it because it's the ferocity in which the arms <laughs> shoot up on the hello. It's like a thrust into, hello, here come my arms. I love it. It, it becomes like, for me, it's, it's a necessary thing because just saying like, like, Try sitting still with like like good posture and and then being like loudly energetic. It makes you be British. It makes me be a British aristocrat of like hello and good morning. Like versus like hi. <laughs> it's a, it's a different level of energy, I think, uh, and maybe yeah. also a, a sign that I've been locked in a home with a small human for like two months. Hey, happens to the best of us. You don't want to get too <laughs> British, by the way. You'll be having drive by arguments by the afternoon. <laughs> But will they be polite and feature a lot of flourished pinkies? I disagree. (laughs) (laughs) I like that a lot. Uh, Ryan is with me today not to talk about Britishness, maybe a little Britishness, but mostly to answer six listener questions. We've got some good ones, some serious, some tactic-y, some less serious, and I look forward to all of them. The first one. Ryan Bailey comes from Patrick Delaney. Wolves are currently sitting 14th. I don't know if that has changed since then, since they did get the win against Arsenal. Patrick says, I was expecting them to be pushing for the European spots. What is going on? I can confirm they're still in 14th position. Thank I you, believe sir. that is the case as of the time of recording. Tete, what's going on? That's another question entirely. Cheers. Uh, we saw, you know, Wolves getting that win against Arsenal where they still were a bit disorganised, I'd say, all around. And they'd gone winless, I think, the previous eight games, yep. uh, struggling for clean sheets. The comparison I've made when I heard this question, when I saw this question from Patrick, thank you for the question, Patrick, was it made me think of West Ham. Do you remember 2015-16, West Ham's final um, season at, at the Bolin? And it, they finished seventh. They had Dimitri Payet. Everything looked like everything's going great guns for West Ham. This team, there was lots of discussion about them finishing top four the following season. Lots of excitement around West Ham. They were moving to a new stadium, for example. Mm -hmm. Uh, They moved to the London Stadium, and then they finished 13th, and things went a bit West Ham-y. And they finished, you know, (laughs) top of the bottom half, kind of the the, the ceiling they hit once again. And maybe they're breaking that ceiling again now, which is another conversation. But that's what it reminded me of. Having a lot of expectation of a a mid-ish table team, if you want to call Wolves that, and then seeing them not meet that expectation. Mm-hmm. So I've got a few suggestions for things it could be. Do you want me to lay, lay some down? Or Yeah, I think I think I would just respond to that initial like parallel. I think there, there's definitely some good connections there because you're right. It's like a team that maybe overperformed but seemed as though the overperformance was justified in that like it's not just a fluke thing. They're not getting fluke goals. They are playing well. Dimitri Payet can score from any position on the field. So why wouldn't that continue? And I think... There's an element of that with Wolves of like it worked last year. They were very defensive. They frustrated teams. They were super good on the counter. Why change that up? And I think that is definitely a good parallel to draw in terms of where they are now. But yeah, let's get into a few more of the specifics, if you would. So um, I'm an idiot who knows nothing. So I consulted an actual person who knows something. Uh, a friend of mine, his name is Mark Nichols. He's a technical, dir- technical director, easy for me to say, at Charlotte Football Club. He is a Wolves fan, T.I.D., mm. till he dies, I should say. <laughs> And I, I was texting him saying, you know, I've got... Wolf Fan THD. Cool. THD, Wolf Fan THD. And uh, I was texting him to try and get some ideas. I had some ideas of my own, obviously. And he sort of reinforced those. But one that I didn't really think about, and it's similar to we had a similar question about Sheffield United not doing so well. 
poor recruitment is number one what you put it down to. You know, Jota and Doherty going and not really being replaced. Sort of, he sort of talked down on Semedo not being being a downgrade and being you know, costing a lot of money. What do you mean? But- <laughs> he was so good against Arsenal. He didn't make three <laughs> distinct mistakes in the lead up to their goal. What are you talking about? Yeah, yeah. So it did come on the heels of that. So, um, <laughs> so maybe it was influenced by that game, that comment. But uh, also, very importantly, not just poor recruitment, but having a pretty small squad in the first place, mm-hmm. and simply not having a break since the end of last season, and going all the way deep in the Europa League quarterfinals. That has taken its toll on this Wolves yeah. team. So I think that's sort of the groundwork of the issues they're having this season. Yeah, I, the, I think the root cause. I think I would agree with. All of that. And I think there's one other thing that I would add to it, which I think, like, once you add that, it kind of locks into place. And it's like, oh, yeah, that is a recipe for for problems. Uh, Tim Spears has written a couple of really good articles about this topic for The Athletic. And his contention was basically after being eliminated by Sevilla last season in the Europa League, Nuno felt like there was it was time to evolve the approach a little bit. Wolves, as I said before. Back three, defensive, frustrate, counterattack swiftly. That front pass or that first pass is always forward. You're trying to expose opportunities. You use Adama Traore, you score goals. He wanted to adjust it a little bit. He wanted to get more possession and more consistent shots on target than they were getting. And so in trying to change that, they have routinely gone from a back three to a back four and back to a back three. The back three gives them stability, but fewer attacking opportunities. The back four gives them more attacking opportunities but they're not as defensively strong. Right. And I think a point you made in there was the the turnaround time from the conclusion of last season to like four hours later starting the next season. It means you have no preseason. You have no way to really practice that or get people up to speed. They're already tired. They're already sort of used to a thing. And now you're asking tired legs to change things up and try new things. And it's always going to be a little bit difficult. I think injuries haven't helped either. Raul Jimenez, Jimenez excuse me, not being uh, involved uh, due to his injury. I think like you add all that together and it does feel like the perfect storm for mid-table mediocrity at best. Yeah, I think you've hit on the two other points I was going to make there. Firstly, that you know, it's simply that Raul Jimenez is missing. You know, they've won four or 14 since he uh, had his unfortunate injury. Um, and someone like Fabio Silva, we quote, I've given him a lot of praise on this show, on, on Total Soccer Show. But, uh, and he's very strong, but also he's a tiny child. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's not quite stepped into the boots as much as he could have done. And I've, I looked into it, and George Mendes made 7 million euros on that transfer. Woof. For, for tiny child Fabio Silva. So make it that <sighs> what you will. Um, he's so that's, right. that's, that's a big part of it. And as you, as you mentioned there, the switch to a back four from a back three, something was, it was a, it was a new, no hallmark, that back three, wasn't it? And mm-hmm. they changed to a back four. It was because Connor Cody went out with COVID, I believe, back uh, earlier in the season. And they sort of almost stuck with it. And they've had one clean sheet since October as a result of that. And, um, I think they missing that third center back mm-hmm. certain, in certain occasions when, when a team is, pressing them into the box or when there's crosses coming in. I think they missed that third centre-back, certainly. And one of the notes that Mark um, uh, sent to me was that it kind of exposes Cody and his lack of pace when there's when there's in, when they're in a back four. They don't quite have the centre-backs to pull off a back four, you know. Um, and, and, and he mentioned that exact dilemma that you mentioned, that when they're with a four, they'll leak goals. But if they go through a three, and they're stronger up top. So it's, it's kind of that, that balance they're trying to strike at the moment. So I'm, I'm not going to call it an identity crisis, but mm-hmm. it's... It's an issue in terms of structure. It's an issue in terms of finding the right players to fit, the right centre-backs to fit. And, you know, they're using converted midfielders a lot of the time. And so there's a lot going on with Wolves. But let's remember, they, they, weren't, they were promoted back into the Premier League not that long ago. They were playing 
above they were punching above their weight they were batting above their average to to, to do what they did last season so you know a mid-table I think they'll get out I don't think mm-hmm. they're going to be in a relegation struggle necessarily because there's, there's certainly worse teams in this league but to be finishing in I'll call it the West Ham zone top of the bottom half I don't think that's a bad thing at all really on par I don't either. And I agree with you that I think they're, they will be safe from relegation. I don't expect them to be pulled into that dogfight. But it's a good reminder of how much like chemistry and form matters that in reading those Tim Spears articles written prior to the Arsenal uh, victory, all of the comments were like, we didn't replace this. This isn't working. We're going down. We're going to be in a relegation dogfight. And you read the one after that Arsenal win, and it's much more like, okay, I can see what we're doing. We pressed this time. Ooh, there was a higher line for a couple minutes. Like, like it is the importance. I'm not just like pointing that out to show like the fickle nature of fans, but more so to show that part of it is just getting those results. And yes, it's two red cards. I know Arsenal fans are mad about the David Luiz one. I will be honest and say I think it was according to the rules, correctly a red card. But yeah, we can skip past that one before I get yelled it's, at. It was a red card, but a harsh red card, right? Yes, I think so. I mean, yeah, you, you clipped to me, wasn't playing the ball. It didn't mean to, but it's still a red card. Either way, sure. I look forward to your angry letters. Uh, but either <laughs> way, I think it, it speaks to, as if you get a result here, if you get a draw there, it changes the mentality, it changes the positivity or the, the lack of positivity as the situation was around the club. And I think it helps everybody feel like we are moving in the right direction, a few of those results. And yeah, I think they're mid-table for sure. I think the other thing that like I, j- just occurred to me, and I'd like to hear what you think about this, it is it is definitely a half-baked theory. But to your point about like th- like them coming up and staying up and looking really impressive, obviously a lot of that is George Mendes and the connection there, and they've been able to get very good players. The Portuguese national team goalkeeper comes in for them in the championship. Nuno managing them. I think there's definitely money behind it for sure. But there's something to be said in my mind for if you just consistently succeed, if you get hired at a company and it's like, wow, you're the best person ever. We're promoting you. We're promoting you. We're promoting you. I guess it's the Peter principle. At a certain point, you do have to deal with like, oh, I've been promoted past where I should be. Not saying that's what wolves are, but I do wonder if this is sort of the first time they've, they've gotten hit a little bit, that it's been a lot of successes, a lot of victories for them. They're in Europe. Yeah. They're doing well in Europe. They're still alive. How is that happening? They're in the top half. And I do wonder if this is just that like first time they've really had to figure some things out. And with that comes, it gets that much harder because if you've only had consistent success for three or four years, it makes not success feel that much worse. Yeah, and let's not forget the randomness, the topsy-turviness, and the unpredictability of this season, of this past 12 months as well. That can play into a successful team. Look at Liverpool at the moment. I mean, they're, they're, being, they're, they're in a rough patch at the moment, arguably. This is true. Arguably. So uh, things, things that you wouldn't arguably. expect to be happening to teams are happening. So I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily say it's a big, uh, the Wolves are you know, in dire yeah. straits at the moment, but... Um, we can account some of it at least to the mental and the phys- physical fatigue of this season, the fact that no one's really had a break, and the fact that everything is a bit weird at the moment as well, which yes. sounds very general. It's a very general point to make, but I think it's important. It really is. It is, because with everything that we've just said, with, with COVID and distancing and the like lack of time between seasons, it's a lot to have to figure out. And I think it's, honestly, I think it's a credit to Nuno that he is trying to be a bit more proactive. He is trying to evolve that squad. Because this is not where they are, but I always go back to like Stoke City under Tony Poulos. Like they're doing fine, they're staying up, they're not playing the prettiest of soccer. And at a certain point, there's evolve or will evolve without you, and they end up evolving without him, and that leads to relegation. So I think there is something to be said for Nuno trying to be proactive, and with the talent they have and the money they're able to spend, 
to just be a bit more like, okay, we've been defensive. Now we want to try to score a few more goals. Let's see how we can make that happen. That said, if they do then find themselves in 18th in a couple weeks from now, then maybe stop experimenting and just go back to what works. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Let's talk about experimenting. Do you remember that U2 album that got put on everybody's iTunes? Oh, yeah. That had a track called Raised by Wolves on it. It was a really good song. (laughs) Apropos of nothing. I, I just still remember the first time Kanye put out that tweet that was like I'm gonna like I'm gonna fix Wolves and I really was for a minute like is he is he is he buying Wolverhampton that was when they're in the championship I don't know how expensive they are uh, but I feel like we've answered what's going wrong for Wolves Ryan what question shall we answer next Why don't we go to a question from Ryan Vance quality name quality name first half of that name checks out Ryan asks Do you think Apple initially purchased the rights to Ted Lasso to gauge its viewers' interest in international soccer to determine if they should attempt to procure any right deals in the future long sentence <gasps> even if that wasn't the plan do you think the show's success could lead them further down the road thank you very much says ryan what do you think tete interesting question it is an interesting question i think my gut answer was no that it was not a part of a larger coordinated plan in like a, a few different quick google searches tells me that it was basically Ted Lasso, I think they started to develop it as a show after the ad campaign in like 2015. It didn't get picked up. They shopped it around. Apple liked the vibe. I don't think it mattered that it was like soccer specific. I think they like the idea of – I think his refrain that I kept reading was that a, a sort of nice guy can be interesting and it's a right. character who's like ignorant but curious. And I think that was what they were going for, less so this can be our uh, entryway into soccer. I'm not saying they won't use it in the future, but I don't think it was initially part of their planning. Yeah, I think I'm inclined to agree with that. I mean, we don't know what's going on with the Apple execs. Who does? But um, <laughs> I, I, I think, first and foremost, I only got into Ted Lasso a couple months ago, and I was absolutely bowled over at how good it was. I'm not sure if you've seen it all, Taylor. I still it's... have not. This might be the final thing. Like Everybody has said it's good, and more importantly, everybody has said it's good, and the people who were also late to it have then said it is good. Yeah. And I don't really know how it possibly can live up to that hype. So I'm just going to try to lower my expectations and still go in. But I am really excited because I do love Jason Sudeikis as well. Oh, of course. He's great. And I, I, I was ready for it to be cheesy garbage because the premise sounds like cheesy garbage. And if you look at the, the NBC shorts, which were funny in their own right, those little couple-minute clips they did of Ted Lasso yeah. as it was Tottenham coach, wasn't it? Um, it looked like that's not a likable character. So I wasn't looking forward to seeing it. But obviously, the one thing they've done, this isn't any spoilers for you, Tay-Tay, but they, he, was, he was ignorant, but he was also a bit snarky and a bit shouty and a bit uh, slightly mean. In, uh, and and, and sort mm-hmm. of willfully, I'm American, this is the way I do it in, yeah. in those old NBC clips. The character is very different, very much softer, much softer edges and much more sympathetic in this show. And that's the key to it. It's not really about soccer, this show. It's about soccer, but it's not. It's like Jaws is a film about a shark, but it's not about a shark. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, I do um, know what you mean. <laughs> I love Jaws. <laughs> exactly. So uh, they, it's got so much heart. It's like Shit's Creek on steroids is kind of what I, I, I'd sort of describe it as, the okay. amount of heart it's got. And for something that's so really British, it's so British, I'm, I'm really impressed at how it's translated to a US audience and people who don't like soccer who i know really really like it that's enough pouring praise on it and i think that nbc missed a shot by not picking it up by the way because i presume they would have got first dibs on that anyway yeah uh, i kind of forgot that that was an option so then the question wow the question then becomes do you think apple will either use ted lasso or it will be sort of not necessarily ted lasso but do you expect apple to pursue soccer streaming i'm not sure if the 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 thought process for Apple was, oh, this thing about yeah. soccer tangentially has done pretty well. Let's try and move into soccer. But I think if you're looking at digital broadcast rights, 
this has to be on their agenda. Yeah. Uh, look at the way Amazon has done things, particularly in the UK. The Amazon has a package where they have Premier League games. They show a lot of tennis, um, high-level tennis as well. And over here, they've got Thursday night football as well. So they're seeing that someone, a, a big player like Amazon is moving into that um, avenue. I think it's only a matter of time before Apple TV Plus, or whatever you want to call it, goes into that um, as well. And you look at the big sort of contracts out here. It'll be NFL, it'll be Pac-12, it'll be that kind of deal. It seems to me like European soccer, or maybe international soccer, even as uh, as Ryan asking his question, that seems like a good entry point. A bit a dip, yeah. dipping the toe into the market, relatively speaking, before you go for let's take all the NFL rights. Hmm. Um, yeah, and let's not forget, Apple have like two billion dollars in cash reserves. Well, there's that, um, so they can afford to do it. Yeah, and Apple, if you do do it, don't make me pay for two services and make Please me switch switch it you know, 10 o'clock to a different feed so I have to find out where a game is. Put it all in one place. Please, Apple, if you do that. Apple Apple Kick Plus or something like that. Yeah, We don't need more pluses. We don't need more additional fees. Uh, I think reading, like, news from a year ago about what their streaming services were going to be, and there was a, like, stated emphasis on not pursuing streaming rights and, like, maybe we'll have some sports apps that you can use for highlights. And then... Like six months ago, it became like, oh, no, we're going to have a ton of sports apps. We're going to have a lot of different services for different sports. And now I think three weeks ago, it was like, we are looking into streaming. It's not the most cost effective thing, which is true that as soon as the result is known, it kind of loses some of the importance the game does. But I think it still is just a thing that will pull people in. But I don't think it will be like like Ted Lasso was our entryway. And now through Ted Lasso, we've gotten championship soccer or something like that. I think it will just yeah. be high profile and expensive when they do it. And they'll also still have Ted Lasso. And I'm a bit of an Apple nerd. And you've got to remember, if Apple says they're not going to do something, it doesn't mean they won't do it. They said they wouldn't do the, 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 the car, for example. And there's mm-hmm. lots of news about that happening and teaming up with Hyundai, as you like to say out here, and doing that kind of thing. What um, do you say? Hyundai? Hyundai. That's probably that's correct. That's probably more the correct way. Yeah. I mean, if you, you see, want to be correct about it, that's how I say it. First of all, a, an Englishman and American talking about how to pronounce a Korean word, I don't think either one of us is nailing it, but <laughs> I think yours feels slightly more accurate than some of ours. I, I will concede when the American pronunciation feels like it's not correct. So I remember back in the day making a video with Kick TV, and we talked about there's a team called the Hyundai something, isn't there, out, 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 yeah, out there? Yeah, so. And um, I, I pronounced it Hyundai, and they, 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 like the... The producer like, no, stop, stop. You said that wrong. And I had to go on YouTube and find like British advertisements for Hyundai cars to prove that I was saying it correctly. <laughs> so that, that was how that was a hill I was not willing to uh, to die on on that point. But the point being, Apple, they, I think that you know, pre Tim Cook, they sort of were very stubborn about their decisions they make. But post post Tim Cook or in the Tim Cook era, if you say they they go back on things like the Touch Bar on your MacBook. They're talking about taking that out. They're talking about adding extra ports. This is all very <laughs> material stuff yeah. I'm talking about here. But it is to say that I. I think if they said they wouldn't do streaming rights, they still very much could do streaming rights and be a bit more reactionary to what the market wants. Remember when they reinvented the keyboard for like two years and then everybody hated it and they completely abandoned that? Yeah, I think that they're okay with uh, going back on some things if they need to to find different avenues. So The Butterfly keyboard, which I had to have replaced on mine. (sighs) I I like waited to buy a new uh, laptop because I like Macs, but I did wait until there was one available that didn't have that because all I had heard is that it is not great. But I like my yeah. new one, so that's good. If, if you wow. eat, um, if you eat confectionery and baked goods over your laptop, which I do most of the day, that's a, that's bad news for your uh, <laughs> your butterfly Did keyboard. I found not out. <laughs> think about that. All right, that's good to know, Ryan. I do have one more like crass commercialization question for you. Are 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 you a U two fan? Like, do you enjoy U two? Uh, this is embarrassing. I love U2. I've seen them in concert many times. Uh, one of my all-time, come on, some of my all-time favorite concerts have been U2 concerts. I'm not ashamed to say it. I don't, I don't, I don't like the, 
the the most recent albums, arguably. But like Acton Baby is one of my all time favorite albums. I like the Rattle and Hum, the live album. I think is wonderful. I put it on. It's like my comfort driving album. You know. Really? All right, cool. Yeah. So then, did you listen to the one that was mandatory on the phone? Because I have heard on like multiple podcasts from people that I respect that like it's actually a pretty good album. It's just that it was mandatory. Mm created such a big backlash and i will say like you two i don't dislike them but they're not my favorite so for a person who does like them did you listen to that album and is it decent should we be listening to this thing that will never not be on our phones i thought the album was really good legitimately okay, this is what i heard uh, and if you if you want to get an int- entry point into you two and you like podcasts i recommend the podcast are you talking you two to me which is That's adam scott and scott orkerman yep uh, orkerman orkerman scott orkerman <laughs> from comedy bang bang those two and he's done a subsequent podcast about um, Talking Heads and I think uh, who was the other one REM but they started off doing this U2 one which I won't spoil the ending but they got some pretty good guests at the end of that podcast let's just say I Um, I can envision (laughs) I forgot so, about all those, like, are, are you, are, I forget the REMing one. So are, are you talking REM, RE me? <laughs> and then are right. you talking Scott. talking heads to my talking head? <laughs> are you a Comedy Bang Bang listener as well? Big time. Love it. Yeah. I didn't know that. Really? Me oh, too. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Uh, a- the Andy Daly ones where he plays 12 characters at once are some of the most ridiculous podcasting I've ever experienced. I don't think yeah, we should go that route, though. He's a virtuoso. I, I think Paul F. Tompkins is a god as well. Oh, this yeah. is another conversation from another time, but he's wonderful. I, I listened to him being Santa Krantz, being iced tea as Santa Krantz maybe four <laughs> times a year. And if people don't know what I'm talking about, you should, because my wife and I will fran- like frequently, just randomly during the day, try to say assumption with a lisp. Because that's what he does. <laughs> that's the thing about assumptions. Well, that's a hard word. Uh, that's my iced tea. My Paula Tompkins doing iced tea impression. There you His are. Andrew Lloyd Webber is excellent. <laughs> you as mean well. Dame Sir Andrew Lloyd Webber? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, enough about random podcasts. Uh, we will be back with more listener questions. But first, we're going to take a break to hear from today's sponsors. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. And we are back with more listener questions. Hands in the air once again, as Ryan points out. They're never not in the air, I guess. Next question comes from Joshua Bishop. Is there a downside to having a sporting or technical director? I find it very comedic, says Josh. I'm not saying this about myself. I find it very comedic that Taylor becomes 5% less of a Man United fan every year that they don't have one. That is true. But just to play devil's advocate... Are there any cons to having one? I'm a Bayern fan, and every year the club makes a signing that was deemed the sporting director's signing, but then rarely plays because he wasn't who the coach wanted. For example, Mark Rocha right now. It's a good, uh, it's a good level of blame, isn't it, if a, if a, uh, if a yeah. transfer doesn't go right? Uh, to be clear, for those who want to, a sporting director is kind of like, it's called various different things, a director of football, a technical director can be called sometimes, although you can have a technical director and a sporting director who can do slightly different things, kind of like a GM in yeah. American sports, right? Yeah. Uh, the premise is that it lets the manager, the coach, focus on coaching. 
And I think it's also used as a sort of a conduit between the technical team, the team, and the board. Sort of a degree of separation between the coach, the manager, and the board. And sort of a, not a middleman, that that downplays it a little bit, but someone who can step into both worlds. And... Uh, you know, they they hire the scouting team. They oversee transfers. What the context we hear it mostly is about transfers, uh, because that's the way the media reports on it. But you know, it's also about scouting. It's also about the academy. A holistic view of the technical side of the of of, of a given club is what a sporting director effectively does. Um, long history of them in on the continent, particularly sort of Italy and Germany, as uh, as um, Joshua mentions there, with uh, you know Dortmund famously having Michael Zork, and and there's names that mm-hmm. have become as famous as players. Ma- Monchi would be the one, and he will be right. the pro and con for this argument. But yeah, like you do yeah. have those people who do get kind of high profile. My my question for you, Ryan, like because I have my idea of of what the role is. Do you feel like it's a product of this is a two-part question, maybe. Like, One, is it a product of the short-term nature of contracts these days that managers tend to be kind of moved in, moved out? Look at Chelsea. Look at lots of other clubs where managers rotate through. You don't want to have to change your vision entirely. So do you think that's part of it? And then also, do you sort of have the natural understanding that with a technical director, for the most part, they sort of have a vision for how they want the team to be? And then it's like the coach can sort of execute that, bring in their own influence. But like, if a, if a te- technical director wants to play like free-flowing attacking soccer, that's mm. sort of like what the team is going to be built around. The coaches that they bring in are going to have that philosophy. Is that roughly how you understand it to be? Uh, that's roughly how I understand okay. it to be. And they are, in, and you look at the hierarchy, they are a step above the coach. Right. And by, by, that, by that definition, they should have a, a view of what the team should be doing. And you look at um, some famous sporting directors, and they quite often have quite a close relationship with, uh, with, their, uh, with their coach. I'm thinking Tiki Bajir, Chiki Bajirsk, Chiki Bajiristan. I think I've just got that, that Still, about I can't right. even try. Don't even worry <laughs> about really it. It's really difficult. Yeah. Those Catalan Pep's names. Pep's friend is what I call him. Pep's yeah. friend, who is the uh, sporting director at Man City and Pep Guardiola, obviously worked very, very closely and they had done previously. Uh, and, you know, sometimes that relationship can be bad. Uh, Marina uh, Grenaskovskia, I think I've messed her name up too, but the, the Russian um, um, mm. sporting director at Chelsea, who sort of viewed with a lot of reverence and respect um, for, for being like a, a really good um, sort of director and a sporting director, director of football, whatever you want to call her. She's got kind of a philosophy and an idea of what she wants to do, if you can call whatever Chelsea have a philosophy. And it can go negatively because Chelsea are the kind of team, as you mentioned, when the short, short nature of managerial contracts uh, or short nature of their tenures, at least, she fell out with Antonio Conte quite badly. And that sort of spelled the end of the road for that relationship. So that would be my answer to a downside in that it can make things, it's an extra way for things to go wrong because it's an extra layer of grievance that a manager can have against their team if they don't see eye to eye with a sporting director. The downside is they can interfere, as, yep. as Conte would have argued that she did in that case, and they can have a different agenda to the manager. So that can just be another source of conflict, I think. Is, yeah, is, uh, I think is it's a it really, it's a, it's a position, I will say, I, like to, to Joshua's point early on like that was a joke i made that i did sort of believe that man united fundamentally needed a person to be in charge of all of these things instead of it being ed woodward or just ed woodward or just Ole Gunnar solshire but it, it is easy to like oversimplify because it requires a very delicate balance to your point of you don't want them overstepping and being like no we're signing this player they're gonna fit into your team trust me person who has their uefa coaching license and knows all these things i know who's gonna fit in like you can't have it be that way 
But also, if you have them not being involved in those conversations, never being involved in player acquisitions, then the question becomes like, well, why have that person there? Why not just give that responsibility to the coach and let them be a commercial officer? And so it is a it's a it's a very delicate balance. You have to have a good relationship, I think. And either that or it has to be the coach does what they want or the technical director is the person who gets what they want. Like unless you have those clearly delineated responsibilities, the balance is important. And that is kind of the downside is if the balance is off, then the relationship is off. Right. And it's, it's just another potential uh, point of conflict mm-hmm. uh, that, that it creates, as I say. And there are, it's become more common in England. And I think it's most teams do, certainly most top teams do seem to have one now. But there are cases where it isn't necessary. I think the big example there is Arsene Wenger, who I would sort of regard as like the auteur director. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, he's like your, your David Lynch or your Christopher Nolan. He's the guy who wants to do everything and sort of he's, he's holding, he's got the, his fingers on the marionettes. I'm doing marionette um, uh, puppetry right now in <laughs> yeah. front of Taylor. Um, but so, oh, so yeah, thank you for verbalizing that. <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> yeah, it, it did look creepy otherwise. No, it was uh, really good. I was just like, oh, what a great marionette impression. And it occurred to me that that's not working for the audio format. <laughs> Woo. Yeah. So Arsene Wenger wouldn't have worked very well with a sporting director you could say something like that so let's talk about man united though because you say you, uh, or joshua says you get five percent less of a man united fan mm-hmm. every year they don't have one you must have right gone now. you've gone below zero percent at this point surely <laughs> i mean it's from when i started that i think it was was the beginning of last season for that right. was my rule it was like i was still support- i was really frustrated and i kind of bought into if you search Man United and technical director, you will get 400 articles starting four years ago about how they're definitely going to sign one this season. Mm. Like, and I think I bought into that. of like, they're going to do it. It's going to be useful. And then at a certain point, if you keep saying we're going to do a thing and you don't, I start to get a little bit frustrated. And so I think that's where it is. And it, and it is also, I'll be honest, like a thing that limits my like enthusiasm for the squad because it still feels like I don't really know what the vision is or what they're trying to do or what they're building towards. And I think that is the advantage of a sporting director is you can sort of see the blueprint you can see what they're going towards with you know if it's a sporting director who wants to play a liverpool style of football if you start having players come in who are very aggressive and fit and like good technically but like happy to high press you can see the vision but if you have kind of a scatter shot like oh they signed two 18 year olds to the first team okay i guess there's a plan there like it yeah. it doesn't feel like there's as much consistency to the level of thought well, that's exactly the problem with Manchester United, isn't it? Consistency of thought. Because if you look at, say, Not the a- team <laughs> under Jose Mourinho, you looked at the team on the field, that was a complete Frankenstein's monster of different signings of three different man- three previous managers, basically. So uh, that wouldn't, under an, ideally, under a good sporting director, you'd have more of a thread of consistency. You know, when your, your album, go back to, let's go back to your U2 album, you know, all these uh, different songs with different sonic levels and stuff going on very different ideas in each song. You get, your, you get your producer who comes in and ties a sonic thread through all of it, and then you get it mastered as well. So it all seems sort mm-hmm. of level, and things are consistent throughout the whole journey of the album. That's kind of a similar concept of what you want with your sporting director uh, over yep. the course of a squad, over the course of a few years. I've once again tied it back to a U2 album. I'm so proud of myself. I mean, you should be. You also, I give you 10 points in my notes for saying Frankenstein's monster. Always credit for that one. Well done, sir. <laughs> yeah, and so I think, like, to, to Joshua's question, what can be the downsides, I think that that is part of it, is that if you have a sporting director come in, Monchi was the one I mentioned previously when he moved from Sevilla to Roma. I believe he's now back at Sevilla. Um, but if you have somebody who works in a specific system in a specific environment and they move to a different club in a different league with different values and ideals and even just like practices and they're not used to a person saying like, no, this is how we're doing it, you can get that pushback. And if you're not mm. fully willing to embrace a person's long-term vision, and that can be a really stressful thing because you're sort of like, 
if this doesn't work, we've all of our recruitment, our coaching hires, the staff we've brought in, the way we're trying to develop players in the academy, all of that is predicated on the kind of ideas of this person. So you are to some extent gambling with is this the way we're actually going to end up playing? Or after a season, is it going to be we're sacking the manager, the director's going with them, we'll figure it out from there, which is sort of what Roma have had to do. So if you end up not liking them or the relationship becomes really strained, in Monchi's case, I think it was his hard line was like, the manager I want is Eusebio Di Francesco. He is the guy that I'm building around. Don't get rid of him. They got rid of him. And that was when Monchi said, okay, like that's it for me. We can kind of nullify this contract. Um, I think... That, that can also be the downside is you mm-hmm. then have a person who has a lot at stake, but it also has a lot of relationships and connections. And if things go sour, they go sour pretty quickly. One kind of downside that just occurred to me as well is when the sporting director role is used for the wrong reasons. Mm-hmm. And I would argue that is when you get a former, let's say, legendary player who comes in and does <laughs> it, which not all, all, sometimes it works. But I, this, what made me think of it is I think I saw Rio Ferdinand tied to Man United as this kind of director. And Patrice Evra. That was the other one rumored. Patrice yeah. Evra. So that doesn't feel like, I mean, no. I'm, I can't doubt their talents and what their, their business acumen or what they've done. I, I don't have full evidence of it, but it feels like they're doing that because it's a name, mm-hmm. because it will satisfy certain, it will tick certain yep. boxes, but not necessarily the boxes they want ticked. Yeah, because even uh, Maria Granitskaya, forgive me, I, I'm not pronouncing it either. Like, Granitskaya, is... I'm going to say, I have no idea that. There we go. Uh, she, that's one of those that like I, I read and don't like pronounce out loud when I read it, and it just becomes my approximation. It's how... Phoebe, for the longest time for me, was Phoebe until I heard that name said out loud. And then I was like, oh, I see what's happened here. Regardless, uh, like I have also heard the allegations that she is occasionally just a rubber stamp for Roman Abramovich. Not saying that is true, but I think that is a knock against Chelsea sometimes that he has undue influence. So to your point, if you have a person who's there, but they don't really have that much authority or they don't really have much experience. And so it then just creates a vacuum for other people to have to fill or have larger roles than they're meant to. Yeah, that that is a massive downside. I think you're absolutely right that if it's used effectively with the right person, it can be a very good thing. It can also be a very negative thing if you don't take it as seriously. U2 sporting director is Brian Eno. There we go. <laughs> and Daniel Lamoir is kind of the 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 the, uh, sp- the, the deputy sporting director. There we go. I've tied it back once again. Is, he's so he's is, the is guy Rick... who sonically ties those albums together. He's like been there for most of their career, from like Unforgettable Fire through to like now, basically. I might be missing the analogy because I like that one. Is Rick Rubin like the ultimate sporting director of music? Oh, he could be because yeah, he goes across different bands as well. He's all over. Yeah. yeah. Let's get you him get in him on your, and see what you happens. get him on your Weezer as much as you get him on your, you know. <laughs> Johnny Cash, man. Yeah, yeah exactly. And Kanye, yeah. the aforementioned. Two yeah. references for a lunatic. All right. And also a wonderful beard wearer like yourself. Oh, that man's beard is he is he should be a Viking or a biker and is instead a very like soft-spoken, thoughtful uh musical producer so there we go i love me some rick rubin more musical bonding for you and me <laughs> also another question would you like to ask it or would you like to be asked i would question? like to ask it okay uh, this question comes from guy yedweb uh i hope i pronounced your name correctly it's guy right anyway I, that's what we've gone with and we have not heard it could be guy you never know <laughs> uh guillem maybe it's short for guillem oh <laughs> now, now we're back to guillem so we, we had a conversation about guillem's off mic here we go <laughs> we certainly did uh guillem yedweb asks uh thomas tuckle calls you Thomas Tuchel calls you. Roman Abramovich has told him he can sell one of the marquee attacking players to buy one defender or midfielder of equivalent value. What swap do you tell Tuchel to make, if mm. any at all? Okay. Mm. So I think we're talking about a broader question here, of, like Chelsea squad. 
yeah. and what changes we potentially make. But specifically, uh, Guillaume wants to know about, um, you know, if we would tre- uh, make a change from mm. their rather bloated attacking options to solidify the defense. I think I'll let you go first, Dave. I think there's one that could be made. All right. uh, I think there's one that could be made. Uh, but I, I will say this. There are some that I do, like decent amounts of research on some i go very in depth this one i i went pretty surface so i will i will be honest and say like i'm not entirely aware of certain people's contract situations but i do think they need a, a more defensive player i think they could use some stability through there i know david alaba was recently talking about how he is not going to be signing for Bayern munich and he is happy to have a new con- like to move on we'll see if that is just posturing if Bayern meet his contract demands but i would assume that chelsea can definitely handle his contract demands then you look at chelsea's attacking options so i do think if they could get david alaba it will require a a decent piece i don't think Olivier Giroud, good as he is, lovely as he is, I don't think that gets it done. I also don't think, say, Tammy Abraham gets it done. I don't know if that's going to be as big of a draw for Bayern. So if I'm swapping for David Alaba, I think the most logical piece is Callum Hudson-Odoi. And I know that they've wanted him before. I think that it's probably, if you're Chelsea, you probably hold out for like David Alaba and some money, given that he is soon to be out of contract. But that is one that sort of makes sense, given how many attacking options Chelsea have. And the recency of the acquisition of some of them makes it hard to then move them on without it looking like a failure. So that yeah. is my answer. That's a good answer. I like it. I'm going to tear it apart now, okay? Please. <laughs> <laughs> well, before I do that, um, I will say that if Thomas Tuchel did call me, I would say, sir, you have the wrong number. Yeah. I don't know why you're asking me why you're doing this transfer. I'm not in that charge. That is the correct I- answer. <laughs> I think you are asking for uh, Marina Gravonsky's number. Uh, let me get it for you. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, in all seriousness, uh, I, I did think long and hard about this. And obviously, Chelsea have many attacking options and perhaps could uh, could afford to have some defensive options coming in. And Alaba is one I thought about, as you did. And he's been linked with the side, linked with Thomas Tuchel and Upacampo as well. Who uh, I think, is he out of contract in the summer? Possibly he is. Who? I can't remember. Upacampo. Oh, uh, Meccano. I don't know, but he has definitely been linked with every club in Europe. So, yeah, if I've, he's I've not, he's going to be wrong moves. there as well. It's okay. I'll, I apologize for butchering his surname. I thought you but, said um, Ivan Campo, and I was like, I don't think he's still playing. But sure. Oh, <laughs> he can't, his, his spirit lives on in David Lewis's hair at of the course. very least. I say, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> my my argument would be like that. They already have some pretty good centre backs. They already mm, got yeah, they got they got Thiago Silva, they got Antonio Rudiger, they got Kazuma, they got uh, Christensen. They've got a lot of options in 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 defence. Are, are those and, really good centre backs? Okay, <laughs> if you don't believe in those, they've got some centre backs on their books already who are well, pretty good. I'm thinking Ethan Ampadu. Obviously, he's doing a pretty good job at Sheffield United and uh, can play. Uh, can, is a flexible player yeah. can play out uh, further forward as well. And the one I wanted to point to is someone uh, who maybe goes a little bit under the radar, but may not next season. Mark Gehi, and I think I've butchered his surname again. Um, who's a centre back? Who is you did, his name is Matt Miazga? Is what you meant to say, <laughs> but that's fine. Pronounce it however you want. Oh, the laughter that that induces from Ryan is is both an insult and hilarious and appropriate. Yes, sorry. Continue, Mark Gehi. I'm going to go with G U E H I. I'm I'm so sorry. He's um he's at Swansea this season, so mm-hmm. are trying chasing promotion. Uh, already shown that he's good in a back three. Uh, and I've seen, I'm talking to Swansea fans, as I have, as is my want, uh, they say that he could basically walk into any top team mm-hmm. in the moment. They're that confident in him. He's so good. So I think he's someone who might get recalled. And that's another option they could have, uh, rather than spending money or spending higher wages, even, on someone mm-hmm. like David Alaba. 
Uh, and I think Tuchel could be very interested in in those kind of lone players. And then I look, you know, there's even players who aren't getting into the squad who could who could do like Billy Gilmore. I don't know where you'd count him. Mm-hmm. You probably count him as one of the attacking players, right? And there is reports that he's impressed Thomas Tuchel in training. He's another player who could come back. I think my point being is I'm not necessarily sure I would make this deal in general because they're pretty strong. They don't need to sign any one big name in in the back. You sure yeah. they could get used to? They could be, uh, do as offloading and sort of cutting some, of, trimming some of the fat of the squad. They do have one of the league's biggest squads, and they've spent more than enough already. I would argue. If you would ask me, Taylor, which player I would cut from the front line, Timo Werner. Yeah, I had a feeling that was going to be your answer. Does, does yeah, this connect know, to the next question? Should we hold off on our Timo Werner thoughts till the next time? Well, not necessarily. Okay. Uh, but what may, no, I'll just say that I've, I've made it clear on this show that I'm not his biggest fan. I haven't been even back when he was back in Germany but to do with his decision-making. And, and I'm not even sure Tuchel is going to... Use, he's, not, he's not used to him in the games mm-hmm. we've seen. I think they're going to play Spurs later on today after we have recorded. So I don't know how that's going to go lineup-wise. But we saw him, I think unused on the bench and then as a support role uh, for Team Abraham, who was up top. So not necessarily his natural role. And I just, I would, I would put more faith in Abraham. I know that's a dangerous thing to say, but Olivier Giroud's there as well, who can certainly do a decent mm-hmm. job. So I would say that's the player I had the least faith in of those attacking options. And if I was to get, trade someone out, it would be uh, um, Justimo. I think... Uh, I'm, I'm going to not tread new ground and say for me, if you're dropping somebody, I'm okay with it being Mason Mount just because I think Football Weekly referred to him as like the best footballer with the most punchable face. Like he's de- he's got a punchable <laughs> face. Is, is sure. And I can't tell that's just because sometimes I feel like he's stealing minutes from Christian Pulisic and he makes me nervous. Uh, but yeah, I, I say, yeah, Mason Mount, go. We don't need English players. It's fine. Let's get more Americans in that team. I think that's what we're both saying. I'm all for that. I'm all for that. But also, I, I want to talk about Mason Mount a bit with our next question as well, because okay. uh, I think he, he, he plays into that as well. All right. Then we do have another Chelsea question to get to. Uh, but first, let's hear from today's sponsors. Hey, folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show, reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early. There are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, It's going to be a chaotic situation. There's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly. There's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there. There's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain. There are many things to deal with. And unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively. But for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. 
Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way, because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. We are back and we have another Chelsea-related question. This one from Jackie Choi. Are we too hard on Kai Havertz? Ryan has his hands in the air. So too do I as we contemplate this one. (laughs) Havertz did have COVID. It was a pretty rough go by all accounts. He only came back in December and I've been shocked. This hasn't been more of a get-out-of-jail-free card, says Jackie. Ryan, how say you? Are we too hard on Kai Havertz? I think, Jackie, I'm sh- uh, shocked but not surprised mm-hmm. by the treatment of Kai Havertz. Yes, he has had COVID. Yes, I think he has, a pretty, had, had, has had a pretty rough go. And I think he's suffering as a fact that it's no secret that Chelsea have a lot of weapons yeah. in that kind of area. And he's not going to get a full run in the team. And that's one of, obviously, Frank Lampard's biggest problems with this team is that he's got too many pieces of the puzzle to fit into the puzzle frame. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense, but you know what I'm saying. So the interesting thing about Kai Kai Havertz is that, you know, we know the kind of position he plays and looking at who scored and who scored uh, statistics, his best performances by who scored metrics are in right midfield. His second are just behind central midfield. Mm -hmm. His worst position, which I think he played quite a bit for Leverkusen, was kind of in a striker role, which is interesting to see. Thomas Tuchel has a very difficult role with him because he's got a lot of competition, as I mentioned, for that for that position, particularly on the right. He's got Mason Mount there. Who is, uh, I don't know how you feel about Mason Mount, but um, certainly played in the last game. Uh, That's what I think. <laughs> and he's got we've got Tuchel playing wing backs as well, which I'm not sure helps uh, Kai Havertz's cause if he's going to play out on the right as well, and and also uh, Hakim Ziyech as well. Yeah. Uh, on the right as well, so a lot of competition there, and it doesn't help. Um, 
that Havertz has come in with a lot of hype. You know, 71 million from for, from uh, doing pretty well in the Bundesliga. 46 goals in 150 matches with Leverkusen, says here. Uh, <laughs> and uh, broke some records uh, with, uh, as a young player in the Bundesliga as well. So it's interesting to see how he's treated Tete. And um, Tim Sherwood, the fountain of knowledge that is Tim Sherwood, saying that he's a liability. Is I don't, he didn't really back up that claim in the uh, video and the piece I watched where he said that? But no, Tim Sherwood didn't back up something that he just declared. <laughs> no, I know. It's, well, I guess it's you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm shocked that he's not a Premier League manager to this day. But here we go. <laughs> um, but I, I think you know it's a, it's a, it's a potentially unsolvable situation mm. because he's simply probably not going to get a run in the team unless it's at someone else's expense and then they're going to have that problem yeah. so it's a headache for Thomas Tuchel so yeah, you've, uh, I've gone round and round the houses to say that yes I do sympathise with him I suppose yeah I, I agree I also think like weirdly this is one of those questions that I sort of kind of take issue with only because like I don't know if people have been particularly hard on Kai Havertz as much as I think they've been really hard on Timo Werner. I feel like he's almost taken right. a lot of the like criticism and allowed Kai Havertz not as much. I think that is also partially because of the COVID uh, diagnosis by his own admission. I think he was like in bed for a week and a half or two weeks. He said when he started running again, it felt like he had never run before. So I do think that does give him mm. a little bit of... Not freedom, but it like I think there is an element there of this was the situation he's still recovering from. We still don't really know how long it can take for players to really fully recover from COVID. But with that said, I think that you're absolutely right that like he doesn't really fit. You said I think he he fits just behind midfield. I'm assuming you mean like just in front of that, like the two midfielders. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like I think I, I agree with you. I think that's like where he needs to be. I think it makes sense for him and, and Timo Werner to have that connection, but it doesn't fit with what Thomas Tuchel wants because even with those wing backs, it's more of that like three, four, two, one, and so you still don't really put him in an ideal position. So I think it, he is in a situation where he's probably going to look kind of bad because. Like even today, I don't know if he's going to play in their game against Tottenham, but it, it seems as though it's like it's almost like by by not being included, he avoids some of the criticism, some of the harshness coming his way. But it also is another negative thing. Like Christian Pulisic is is like not getting minutes under uh, Tuchel as much, but at least he's involved in the squad. And so I think that is definitely a worrying sign for Kai Havertz, and I'm not sure how he rectifies it. Yeah, but I will say, as someone who supports a team from Southwest London. I can't give too much sympathy to Chelsea or their organisation, as a matter of course. Yeah. I'm sorry about that. But it is an interesting situation, uh, 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 situation going on there, Tete, with this squad uh, that they've got, the squad division, uh, mm-hmm. and the stuff we've seen of Antonio Rudiger. Have you seen these rumours about sort of a breakup within the squad? Yeah, 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 yeah. Where it was like him and Kovacic supposedly went and had words regarding not enjoying their, their football under Frank Lampard. So, yeah, there's been these rumours, which I think Antonio Rudiger has, has vehemently denied in the press, that him and Kovacic, I think Jorginho's been um, uh, wrapped into this situation as well, as sort of forming an alliance against Frank Lampard and this sort of exercise in player power. Mm. And uh, I've got a little bit of a TSS exclusive to use uh, some comedy bang-bang language, if you, uh, <laughs> you want to hear it. So uh, I, know, uh, I have a source at Chelsea who... How do I say this without getting the TSS uh, fire truck of lawyers involved? <laughs> allegedly, they, I don't know. Allegedly, this situation is true, and there was a big uh, split in the in the squad. There was oh. a certain uh, uh, segment of players trying to get Lampard removed from duties, and they may have had a success in that. Mm. Um, and there was a certain uh, faction of players who were sort of 
suppressing the youngsters coming through as well and maybe some bullying involved as well. So that that is a so some background hmm. of this whole Chelsea mess to add an extra layer of mess to the messy pie that is the Chelsea squad. <laughs> yeah, that's, and that's, that's... I mean, I'm sure they would love some Messi and his pies to be involved in the squad. <laughs> that seems unlikely for Chelsea. But I think, like, I, I think to... To keep that in mind, like with Jackie's question, I think there's a chance that Kai Havertz ends up getting consistent minutes and Thomas Tuchel figures out how to use him and it all goes well. I think there's also a chance that he ends up being one of those players who's sort of in the squad, he's in some cup games, he ends up getting loaned out, and then maybe does really well on that loan or gets moved on and does Mm. well there, but it becomes a sort of like, I'm not quite sure what happened. And I do think that he is kind of a victim of the situation that I don't think Lampard put him in the best situations, like really knew how to utilize him to get the best out of him. A lot of that was because, as you mentioned, of like the number of attacking players they have and trying to kind of rotate everybody in and make those minutes count hasn't really worked so well. Then the COVID situation now with Thomas Tuchel, Thomas Tuchel obviously not the person who brought Kai Havertz in. So he may well be end up being a sort of victim of circumstance, which is a strange thing to say about a player who cost as much as he did. But... I, I I have some sympathy for him in that regard. Less so for Chelsea, as you said, because they have all the money in the world and just keep signing players. And this feels like a thing that they should have seen coming, even if they did not. If only they had a good sporting director sorting <laughs> these things out, Tate. If only. Imagine. Yeah. And I think like that that is something that maybe like has to happen, is they just have to let things thin out a bit. They've got to find a way. Like I just think there's there's so many players involved in that Chelsea team that it's gonna be a tough ask for Thomas Ducal to get all of the minutes, I don't think it will be possible. And I think he will have to make hard decisions. Kai Havertz may well be one of those decisions. And maybe he ends up, maybe he goes to Wimbledon. Let's get him in Wimbledon and see what happens, Ryan. Oh, he doesn't want anyone to go anywhere near that organization right now. With all due respect to Kai Havertz. All right, fine. We won't do that to him. We'll leave him with Chelsea for now. And in the meantime, uh, Ryan, would you like to ask our final question of the day? I certainly would. Here it goes. The final question from David Roberts. Hello, David Roberts. Hope you're well today. David asks, I recently finished watching The Queen's Gambit, along with the rest of us, David, and I'm wondering if chess strategy could be translatable to soccer strategy. The floor is yours, Taylor Rogwell. I mean... I have hours of thoughts. Uh, I do not. I do sort of have thoughts uh, because of this question. And I will say, this is like my favorite type of question to answer because when I first saw it, I kind of put it in to say like, no, I don't think so. And then we could riff on like, maybe if you cross diagonally, I think is what I suggested to you yesterday. In doing some reading, I see where David is coming from. And I don't mean that like you can design set pieces based on like uh, chess plays. But I think in learning some of the like the actual... I forget the difference between tactics and strategy, but the actual like moves and the approaches to little moments, uh, pins and discover doubles and things like that, I think it can put you in the mindset for, oh, I want to... So, for example, like one of the ones that I wrote down was a back, a back rank checkmate, which is when you have your king is like pinned behind your own pawns. And so if you get a rook forward, they can't move anywhere. Like the idea of isolating players using their own players, I can see how... Like using chess strategy can help you improvise and come up with different ways to look at soccer strategy or come up with ways to isolate or think you're attacking this piece to then attack this piece. I can see how it would work. I have a couple other examples, but Ryan, I'm interested to hear your your thoughts as well. Are you a chess player, Tay Tay? I, I play chess. I don't know like any strategy behind it. Right. I feel I feel the same way. I feel like in answering this question, I'm a little bit like uh, I'm trying to explain brain surgery to someone having not known the intricacies of brain surgery. But uh, to, to start off, Queen's Gambit, great show. Better set design than Mad Men. Big fan of it. 
uh, story of a young girl getting very good at chess, having been taught by Scruffy, the janitor from Futurama, <laughs> and going on to great things. Yep. Um, and on on the surface of it, Tete, there is a lot to be uh, to be combined or to be learned from the, the, the strategies of soccer and chess. There is a book I just found on Amazon called Football and Chess, Tactics, Strategy, Beauty, uh, in which there are sort of comparisons made to the way that a manager will read the pitch as the way a chess player reads the board. They're making a comparison in the blurb of this book to the way Jose Mourinho's defensive coming cut. Cunning, woo, and grandmaster, and a grandmaster's principle of defence. Easy for me to say, boy, oh boy. <laughs> um, so, but this kind of feeds into some of the ideas I had about this. And the first thing I thought of was Joe's, uh, sorry, Pep Guardiola. Mm-hmm. In that we heard, we know that he uh, divides the field up into twenty sections. And that makes me think of a chessboard. Yeah, I mean, sixty-four sections in a twelve, but he treats it as individual areas that you have G- to. Pay give him attention. a couple more years, we'll get to sixty-four. We'll move from <laughs> twenty to sixty-four. I think when he starts micromanaging, to, yeah, much much further, and, uh, and you know, there, there are very there are very definite definite tactics in both. Both mm-hmm. have philosophical approaches. Um, the Queen's Gambit, the actual thing is a gambit is an opening move, and there's lots of different opening moves in chess, of course. And I feel that's kind of the way that a team will open up and set up. Like, are we going to set up to attack today? If you're Jose Mourinho, we're going to send a pawn up the board, and then all the other uh, chess pieces mm-hmm. are going to stay within the first two rows, <laughs> and we'll see how that goes. So, uh, uh, and I, yeah, I think. Is there like I don't know if there's a chess version of XG. Is it like percentage plays? Because I'm not very good at looking of uh, at like three or yeah. four moves ahead, which is what a good chess player does. Probably this is even the thing. more yeah. moves ahead than that. So that kind of feels a bit XG-ish. You know what I mean? It when does. you're looking at those percentage plays as well. So I think Advanced there's some comparisons. Moves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, 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 obviously the idea of chess is to think several moves ahead to create an opportunity to hit your opponent on the break. That sounds familiar. It does, man. Bringing up Jose Mourinho, first of all, I'll say that if you could pass in chess, like if you didn't have to take a move, that would 100% be his tactic. But you know for sure Jose Mourinho was the, growing up and probably as an adult, was the person in checkers who somehow never moved their back line. You know that, that there were never <laughs> any openings. You were never getting a king in your checker game against Jose Mourinho. I feel confident in that. I really like a lot of your points, Ryan, and I think... it can, Like, yeah, the philosophy, I think, sort of connects, and so you can use it... To even just like inspire, I think is what where I'm going with it. If that makes sense, and there's mm. like I, I learned I did not know this term before. A Zugzwang, which is appropriately a German word, which is essentially like the situation is such that any move you make is bad for you. Like it doesn't matter where you move, every single thing puts a piece in danger or puts another one of your pieces makes them vulnerable, and that feels like a definite tactic that say Jurgen Klopp likes to use of like mark everybody make the opposition play a risky pass that doesn't then work and so I wouldn't say that again you can look at a chessboard and be like oh I made the king do this and that was Zugzwang and I'm gonna do that with like against Crystal Palace but I think you can get ideas for strategy you can get inspiration for how to how to play or new approaches maybe some set pieces but I think just different ways of like adapting already existing systems, I think you can find inspiration for that wherever you want to look. And I think chess probably provides you lots of opportunities for that. Yeah. And on the on the surface of it, the, the, the job of a coach or a manager mm-hmm. is to do things without chaos, to have structure and mm-hmm. to have ideas of what you're going to do. That is essentially what a good chess player does, right? Both yep. have a philosophical approach. I imagine Arsene Wenger probably sat there and thought of it like chess. Yes. 
Do you think with so? some wine? I feel like there was a glass of wine. I don't know if Wenger was a drinker. I know he didn't like beer, but I feel like mm-hmm. there was some wine and, and chess happening in Arsene Wenger's life. I bet a nice a cognac by the fireplace, swir- swirling like swirling the glass, uh, Homer Simpson style. <laughs> I have one more like real world correlation though. From my understanding, I, again, I don't know if this is like true tactics, but I was taught and never listened to the idea that you're not supposed to bring your queen out immediately because that is such an important piece that you're supposed to wait and let the board develop then you utilize the queen so i think of when i would it was usually when i was kind of impatient and wanted to be aggressive and i'm going to directly correlate that with Lionel messi when he starts dropping in like the deeper he gets on the field is in my mind the equivalent of bringing your queen out too early of like Oh, he brought out his queen in the third move. Wow, he is raring to go. Oh, Lionel Messi is already past midfield and it's four minutes in. Okay, I know what this game is. He's already frustrated. So I think that connects to me. That was my one yeah. like direct connection I could think of. And if we were to use the Mourinho analogy once again, the queen would move in the first two moves and then stay back for the yeah. rest of the game. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you raise expectations and then dash them quite expertly. Well done, Jose. So here's a, here's a little exercise, Tate. I was thinking, mm-hmm. well, let's take the team Manchester United and let's assign all the players chess pieces i'll go first i think i think your king is bruno you sort of oh, start attacking yes. midfielder, pr- protect yes. the king at all costs uh even if he does have some vulnerabilities and uh, doesn't always get things on target shall we say <laughs> i think um luke shaw uh or a uh, peak roberto colas as we're now calling him he's your rook <laughs> yeah you know, straight up the flanks yeah that works for me <laughs> not a lot of Who's guile me? it's a lot of like forward backward <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, Unite. I'm gonna I'm gonna give that to Mr. McSauce, Mr. McTominay. Ooh, Great okay. can bend the ball occasionally. Who's many? But like, but balls? rigid in how it moves. Yeah, it's got very yeah, specific yeah. patterns of movement. Yeah, I, I like that. As I t- was taught when I was younger, horsey go L shape, which is uh, <laughs> <laughs> how, uh, how that piece operates. You know, a little bit of creativity. Not always taking the uh, most obvious trodden path there. Uh, horsey go L shape. Thank you. Yeah. All right, continue. Thank sorry. <laughs> And uh, that's as far as I've got. But uh, okay. I was thinking there must be some pawns in that squad, surely. Mm, uh, Is Harry so, yeah, Maguire was, a pawn going in there head first, maybe? He's a big old big-headed pawn. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> let me, like, uh, so the bishop thing, if we're thinking about like diagonal runs, I don't, like maybe that's Rashford because he pops mm. up on different sides of the field but tends to like uh, drift inside, especially on the left when he cuts inside. I feel like that's a kind of bishop move. So I'll go with Marcus Rashford as a bishop. The pawns one. I'm just trying to think of who sits on the bench. Like Marcos Rojo would have been. I think he's now been sold. But he he comes to mind. But see, that's a, that's even incorrect because that's implying that they're completely useless. And a pawn is a thing that you use in very specific specific situations, either too much to your benefit, they can become a queen, or you sacrifice them to pull somebody out. So who would be the like? Maybe Juan Mata is sort of like you use him. Very seldomly, but when you use him, it can be very important. Mm, a very That's my intelligent piece. A very intelligent piece. I thought of one more. Uh, Donny van der Beek. Uh, Donny van der Beek is the clock. Just sits on the sidelines and watches the time. <laughs> this is, yeah, yeah. I think that, that, that fits really well and also makes me sad. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, 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 like, I like this. I just, I don't know. Do we do that? I guess the Queen... That maybe is Paul Pogba because it just goes wherever it wants, regardless of what people ask. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. That's good. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. I like this. I think. I think we've done the exact job that uh, that was hoped for when we started answering the question from David about <laughs> uh, chess strategy in soccer, and we ended up creating a Man United chess team. I like it, Ryan. Well we done. Did indeed.
I also like uh, that we have come to the end of the show, though I have enjoyed it because it has been very fun to talk about other podcasts and music and TV shows and then also answer some questions as well. Uh, we do still have the Soccer 101 live show, new episodes of Soccer 101 every single week, sometimes multiple ones. And then every Thursday, sometimes it'll be late afternoon, sometimes it will be evening, but we'll be doing uh, live shows where myself or Ryan, myself or Joe this week, will be answering some questions, having some conversations, putting some questions to our listeners. Uh, so, so a nice chance to interact there. We've got Allocation Disorder on Friday and many more shows to come next week. For, for now, Ryan Bailey, anything else from you? Any other albums or TV shows or things that need to be discussed? Thank you very much, Taylor. I've, I've enjoyed this episode immensely. I'm looking forward to more episodes of TSS and Soccer 101 dropping into my feed like an unwelcome U2 album from the <laughs> mid-2000s. But being very much welcome. Analogy doesn't work. <laughs> it worked for me. I knew what you were going for. Listeners, thank you all very much for listening. We will talk to you again very soon. And in honor of our conversation earlier, what's up, hot dog? Kick boss.